0: Hey, everyone. This is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules-Based Disorder. As always, I invite anyone who is listening to go ahead and join the queue, and I'll respond to questions. I, Before I respond to questions, I just want to address a few topics. Of course, the Supreme Court ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade is the biggest story of today. Today Today is June... 24th. And that's a huge scandal, obviously. I mean, it really shows how incredibly incredibly undemocratic the Supreme Court is and really the U.S. government is. Polls show that two-thirds of people in the United States support Roe v. Wade. Fewer than one-third of people in the United States want to overturn Roe v. Wade. This should be a huge scandal. But, you know, as horrible as this is, the good news is that this is getting a lot of media attention. There are protests planned. Unfortunately, there's not a lot that can be done because it's it's a done deal at this point, but it's good that people are organizing protests. But I want to talk about another Supreme Court ruling, actually two other court rulings, one Supreme Court ruling and one lower court ruling that also show how the U.S. is becoming more and more authoritarian by the week. I mean, really, any semblance or any figment of democracy, any fragment of democratic representation is being taken away. So another Supreme Court ruling from yesterday, June 23rd, is that the Supreme Court ruled that police in the United States do not have to provide, pe- remind people of their Miranda rights. So for people who don't know, Miranda rights are the Rights that are guaranteed to people being detained or stopped by police in which they say you have the right to remain silent, that that a lawyer will be provided to you and all of that. Well, the Supreme Court has now ruled that police do not need to guarantee people their Miranda rights. And previously, before this ruling, it was possible for people detained by U.S. police who were not given the Miranda rights to sue those police officers. But now, no, the Supreme Court has ruled that, in fact, Miranda rights are not a constitutional right. So this is yet another example of the U.S. just plunging even deeper into a complete total police state where the court says you don't have constitutional rights guaranteed from police abuse. And now, of course, this is going to incentivize police in the United States to... To intimidate people, to pressure people, to coerce people into making incriminating statements. I mean, this is truly dystopian. This is an article in Forbes. It was just published yesterday, June 23rd, title. Police who don't confirm right to remain silent when making arrests cannot be sued. Supreme Court rules. And then they say criminal suspects now have less legal recourse if police officers fail to read them the Miranda rights, that they have the right to remain silent and to an attorney. And they say that the Supreme Court ruled that even this is true, that even if it leads to the suspect incriminating themselves. So another basic civil right just being taken away from people, it really shows that You can't even call these rights. You can't call them Miranda rights because they can be taken away from you tomorrow by a bunch of unelected, knuckle-dragging medieval theocrats who are appointed for life on the Supreme Court. And here's a quote from an attorney at the, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, quote, By denying people whose rights are violated the ability to seek redress under our country's most important civil rights statute." the Supreme court further widens the gap between the guarantees found in the constitution of the bill and rights and the people's ability to hold government officials accountable for violating them. So this is a huge scandal and I'm glad to see there is this massive outrage over the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but there should also be attention to these other ridiculous Supreme court decisions. By the way, I want to point out that in this Supreme court case, That basically gutted people's Miranda rights and gave police even more authority to abuse their power and intimidate people and coerce people. That it was the Biden administration siding with the police. So there you go. Bipartisan descent into complete authoritarianism. Now, I also want to point out another court ruling. This is not the Supreme Court. It's a lower court, but it also shows Once again, how so-called rights in the U.S. continue to be taken away. The country keeps becoming more and more authoritarian and undemocratic. This is on June 22nd. So two days ago. Breaking news. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled today that boycotts are not protected by the First Amendment. The ACLU has confirmed it's taking to the case to the Supreme Court. Obviously, it's going to have huge implications for free speech. So a lower court ruled that people in the United States do not have the constitutional right to boycott and specifically to boycott apartheid Israel. Basically, the lower court ruled that states have the right to criminalize boycotting apartheid Israel to make it making it legal for these states to fire officials fire public state workers who who boycott Israel and allowing corporations, I mean, they already have the right to, to fire people who boycott Apartheid Israel or boycott anything. I mean, this is in the context of the BDS movement, boycott divestment sanctions in support of Palestinian rights. But it's also just in general for boycott. So if a far-right Florida president uh, Florida president, Florida governor, if, you know, Ron DeSantis type, who bo- boasted about supporting this legislation that makes it basically illegal to boycott Israel. If he takes it further and says, if you refuse to boycott, well, that's the refuse to boycott. If you, if you boycott, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, if you boycott Brazil, If you boycott Turkey, then I'm going to fire you. So, I mean, of course, this is in the context of Israel and the BDS movement, but the implications are extreme. So this case is now going to the Supreme Court, and it's very likely that the Supreme Court is going to say we do not have constitutional rights to boycott. This boycott is a a very important tactic. It has gone back many decades in support of human rights. Basic civil liberties. So in the case of the civil rights movement in the United States, the Montgomery bus boycott was a huge part of the fight against Jim Crow and, and the racist white supremacist system of apartheid in the United States. And then boycotts were an important part of the movement for justice in South Africa and the end to the apartheid system there. But this is how far we've come in the, in the great democracy of the United States. Now boycotts are not even going to be uh, a, gu- a guaranteed right by the First Amendment. So, really, the First Amendment means nothing at this point. So, I do see that, um, you know, I do have someone waiting in the queue. I just want to talk about a few other topics, and then anyone else who's listening, please feel free to join the queue, and I'll respond to questions. But I want to address a few other things. Another story from this week that is very scandalous, it's not getting a lot of mainstream coverage. This is reported by the National Security Archives, which is a great institution over at the George Washington University in Washington, they they published a report on June 23rd titled, Haspel Personally Observed CIA Waterboarding, Witness Testify. This is about the former CIA director under Donald Trump, although she had bipartisan support when she was approved by Congress. She personally oversaw waterboarding torture, personally, at a black site, a CIA black site prison in Thailand in 2002. And this is according to testimony at a military tribunal in Guantanamo Bay, the occupied territory in Cuba that the U.S. uses to torture people in this, this dystopian prison. Now, this scandal is already big enough. We, we did know that. Haspel was implicated in torture, but now we know that she personally oversaw and ordered waterboarding torture. Again, this is the former CIA director. So, I mean, for people who know the real history of the CIA, it's of course not a big surprise, but it really does show what the real CIA is. But this scandal is also even more ridiculous, and this is not getting that much coverage in the media, in that Haspel also ordered the video evidence of the torture to be destroyed. So not only did former CIA director Gina Haspel oversee torture, she then ordered CIA officials to destroy 92 videos showing the water border, waterboarding torture. So this this report noted that the attempted cover-up helped prompt the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence to launch its investigation into the agency's torture program. And there's this movie about this with, uh, I can't remember what his name Adam Driver. There's a movie about this. It's like on Amazon or whatever. It's, it's okay. It's not a great movie. But it does detail this campaign to expose CIA torture. And here, here this is a quote... The Senate Intelligence Committee study of the CIA program, only a part of which is public, said that CIA interrogators wanted to stop using enhanced interrogation because he was answering direct questions, but they were overruled by headquarters. So that's to say that the torturers themselves recognize that, that they, that their torture was not effective because obviously when people are being tortured, They're usually just going to say whatever you want them to say to stop the torture. So they said that it's not effective. We shouldn't be torturing. And they were overruled by CIA leadership and by Gina Haspel. So yet another example of the great U.S. democracy based on taking away basic rights of its people and torturing people at CIA black sites. Now, another thing that I wanted to mention related to the, the great U.S. democracy is I did a, an episode here about the British decision to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. It's just obviously extremely horrifying. It's a huge blow to freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Yet another example of the authoritarianism of the U.S. government. But I do want to call out a very powerful and impressive speech given by Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO. He addressed the British decision to extradite Julian Assange to the US in a press conference that he gave. I did a video about this over at YouTube, and you can find an article about it at multipolarista.com. I just wanted to mention it here because I haven't talked about it in the show. I just highly recommend everyone to go check that out. It's a very impressive speech. It shows what a real president looks like. AMLO condemns U.S. government hypocrisy. He says, why are we talking about democracy, human rights, freedom of expression? Are we gonna take the Statue of Liberty out of New York? He said that Julian Assange is a political prisoner, a prisoner of conscience, which he objectively is. He also said that Julian Assange is the quote, best journalist of our time in the world. And he called for the United Nations to to speak out in support of Julian Assange. And then in an incredible moment, which again, you can find the video of this over at youtube.com slash multipolarista. In the video, Amlo, at his press conference, he played the video of the US military murdering civilians in Iraq, including a journalist from Reuters. That video is called Collateral Murder. That's the video that was released by Chelsea Manning and given to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. And and Amlo paused his presidential press conference. And again, this is the president of Mexico. He played this video showing the U.S. military murdering journalists. And he said, this is why Julian Assange is in prison he said, this is a shame for the world. So that was an incredible moment. I just wanted to give a shout out there because in, in these episodes here at rules-based disorder, I've talked about the Julian Assange case. I've talked about Mexican politics, and I just wanted to give another shout out there to AMLO. And for people who haven't seen that, I just recommend checking it out. But, um, with that said, I'm now going to start responding to questions. So Um, I'm going to take a question here from Sam and then anyone else who's listening, please feel free to go ahead and join the queue. Go ahead, Sam.
1: Well, thanks for having me on, Ben. Um, Sure. I got to keep, I think I said this last time, I swear, it's like AMLO wants to be coup d'etat. I mean, you can only keep doing this before suddenly we're going to start hearing CNN's Jake Tapper talk about AMLO the dictator. I mean, I'm giving that about another month before we start hearing that. But um, I'd have to correct you, Ben, uh, when you referred to Guantanamo Bay, it, it's uh, not we didn't uh, take part of Cuba's land. If you uh, read The New York Times article, it's it's like a college campus, man. It's it's fun. <laughs> there's a McDonald's. There's drive through. I mean, how can you not like that? But I mean, to sum it up to every point you've made from the overturn of Roe Ro versus Wade, I mean, I think. I think this just goes to Chris Hedges' point about the fall of the empire. I mean, we we can't even boycott without being fired. And I guarantee you soon enough we boycott will be prison sentence. Uh, this is just the fall of our, our own empire. We, we've just become more and more authoritarian while still preaching democracy and freedom. It's just a, a snowball downhill from this point. I don't see anything going back uphill. I think we've, We've already crossed the point of no return. It's just now a matter of watching it decay over time. Um, I did want to ask you one thing. And I, because, again, you're the person I referred to. I caught an, It's not an article. It's not a, I don't like reading the Daily Beast, but it popped up in my news uh-huh. feed. Um, sorry. Uh, and it was talking about, um, I think what I was telling you last time, which is Turkey's going to use the whole Russia-Ukraine proxy war to uh, to move into Syria and like you said the the Kurds have a choice now between either negotiating with the government or you know having the the having Turkey move in and he I, you know he's doing it just cuz he needs the popularity because you know there's such hatred and animosity towards the refugees in Turkey so i i defer to you and what you think is going to happen because i think it will happen relatively soon turkey's going to move in because i think they even realize that if they hold out any longer, the conflict in Russia and Ukraine could come to an end soon and they have a small window to act. So what do you think would be the is is what we're gonna see coming, you know, in the next month or two?
0: No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that Turkey, Erdogan himself has made the calculation that this is the moment because so much of the attention is focused on Ukraine. And also I mean, he already has invaded Syria two times, so You know, the the more he does it, the less media attention it gets. But I I also think, you know, you you mentioned that this is also a distraction, but there are serious economic problems in Turkey that don't get that much coverage. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's inflation around the world, obviously. But the inflation in Turkey has been going on for much longer than the global inflation crisis and has been much more severe. And basically, Erdogan has been doing this very strange economic policy that some people claim is intentional, I'm not so sure it's intentional, but basically has been extremely devaluing the currency. And a lot of it is because people suspect that he refuses to raise interest rates because he tries to follow this idea of like Islamic banking that is against interest They say like interest as haram, which I mean, I guess, you know, I, I I am not a fan of interest, obviously, but He has had this skyrocketing inflation problem and refused to raise interests, interest rates, and basically now with the global inflation crisis, it's made the inflation in Turkey even worse. His popularity has been greatly declining, and this is what a lot of leaders do when they have when they face uh, you know a popularity crisis: is they continue to scapegoat foreign powers, launch military attacks, and. In the case of Turkey, I mean, I'm, Erdogan's also playing this very complex game where I'm sure you've seen that he is threatening to withhold his vote on Sweden and Finland becoming part of NATO because of, because they, you know, on paper that they like have supported the Kurds. And so Turkey is just taking advantage of all of these crises just to push this kind of like neo Ottomanism, this expansionism. And I think it's, he's not going to face any slap on the wrist. The thing about Erdogan is that when he does this kind of thing, like in Syria, he faces no slap on the wrist. But when he, you know, buys the S 400 missile defense system from Russia or something like that, then suddenly there's criticism in Washington. I mean, it's so incredible. The, the hypocrisy in, in, in condemning Erdogan. Like, I, I don't, I don't know if people remember two years ago, there was this war for several weeks in Azerbaijan and Armenia, between Azerbaijan and Armenia and Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And Turkey strongly supported Azerbaijan in this war. And Russia was like kind of quietly supporting Armenia, but Russia didn't take a strong public stance, even though Turkey was, they had troops with the Azerbaijani military and they were involved in this operation. And well, not just they,
1: troops. They also had um, the their what do you call them? What is their name? The Syrian National Army. They're essentially mercenaries. I mean, they just ship them over to Azerbaijan. Yeah, what this is, is, is a, the, the Turkish-backed uh, groups that they're funding in the northern area? What is what is the name they go by these days?
0: Yeah. Well, um, I'm trying to remember. That's a, that's a good question. It's like the I think it's Syrian S-S-S-N- National Army.
1: Yeah. Yeah. SNA. I think is the newest name they're they're going with. But yeah, they shipped them over to Azerbaijan. They shipped, they even shipped them over into Libya. These guys are, are mercenary
0: for hire. Exactly. And what I was going to say is that when Turkey was doing that, NATO was asked about Turkey's involvement and they said that it was completely fine. They just gave it the complete green light. So that, that's that's the role that Turkey has played for many decades is that when it's useful for Western interests, then they're praised. And then when they do something that The West doesn't like, then they slap them on the wrist. But in the case of invading Syria, I mean, at this point, that's only going to help the U.S. attempt to continue at least destabilizing Syria. They know they lost. So at this point, it's all just about bogging down Syria, preventing it from reconstructing. And that's what's so sadistic and disgusting about this policy in particular, is if you listen to a lot of these U.S. officials, they acknowledge they lost the war in Syria. But they say openly, they say, we want to prevent reconstruction, and well, that's they just, even that's said uh, we
1: experience. want to create a quagmire for Syria when they were asked about Idlib, and they said it's just better if it's a quagmire there. But uh, to my point, though, with with this impending you know invasion coming, uh, the article had said like what you've said, the Kurds have a choice: either they're going to cross their fingers and hope the U.S. is going to back them, which they won't, or they make a deal with the government, and even that might not stop it because. Turkey's using the whole um, veto thing of, uh, of NATO, which Russia would prefer. But I would say to you that if the Turks move in, um, then the, what would the, the U.S. would have no longer? Uh, would you Do you still think the U.S. would have a presence in Syria if they move forward or they would just still have a presence just like in that small little border area between Iraq and Syria and, you know, just stay there? Because I think it would be hard for Kurdish led groups to still think that they can be opportunistic once Turkey moves in and relocates refugees, which would, of course, the last time they did that, you know, caused 150,000 people to be, you know, relocated or displaced in the areas that they moved forward in.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is this is the question. Honestly, the Turkish military is not going to take any action that could accidentally hurt a U.S. soldier because they understand how dangerous that would be for them. One of Erdogan's main concerns is U.S. sanctions, and to be fair, I mean, obviously, I think Erdogan's pretty awful, but we should recognize that in Washington there is this kind of neoconservative lobby that is has been pressuring for sanctions on Turkey, and you know, John Bolton is part of it. So it's a it's a complicated game. Turkey constantly plays this strange role of one day being Russia's friend, one day you know shooting down a Russian plane, so the and also we should we should also distinguish Erdogan from the Turkish military now he did a very significant purge especially after the coup attempt mm-hmm. of in 2015 he did a very significant purge of the state but the military has still been a kind of bastion for the kemalists for the more secular forces and they're not as ideologically motivated by this kind of neo-ottomanist idea that Erdogan has, and they also they as a NATO military they they still do military exercises with the United States. They're not going to do anything that could accidentally harm a U.S. soldier. So if the U.S. says, well, I, I think what it's going to come down to is what the Pentagon says. Joe Biden isn't making any decisions. He's completely you know out to lunch. He's gone. So. It's going to be based on what the Pentagon leadership says. And I think it's very possible that the Pentagon leadership might say, we won't oppose you coming in and in, in like the area in between the like the northern, northern west parts that are already occupied by Turkey. And then the, the northern and northeastern parts that are occupied by the US. There still is some territory in between those areas. That have not. Is
1: it like, um, is it Manbij or it's, it's? I know it's north of Aleppo. Um, that's like a kind of a merger uh, portion between Kurdish-led groups and the Syrian government. But the according to the Daily Beast article, and I don't like citing the Daily Beast, but I did find. <laughs> I I know. Trust me, it's not. I didn't go looking for it. It just popped up in my feed. But if you find it, it did a decent job explaining, like that Russian forces have pulled back from that area, and uh, Iranian-backed uh, groups are more in that area now. But I mean, you know, they're not they're, as strong as they are. They're not going to withstand a Turkish, you know, exactly. uh, a military force. But and anyway, I mean, I uh, I know that's the area you're talking about. It's like more north, and the U.S. is occupied more in the northeast exactly. Syria-Iraq border. Exactly. So I'm just thinking like. When the Kurdish led groups now have to just face reality and be like, look, we kind of have to make a deal with the government because we cannot be opportunistic anymore. Or I, I my view is they will still stay, be opportunistic because as even if they even if they don't have that whole northern territory, as long as they have the territory where the oil and the wheat fields are, I say they'd still be opportunistic. But, you know, that's just my view. I don't want to take up uh, too much more time. I uh, hope you'll do a video on it soon. And I can't wait to talk to you next week, man.
0: Yeah, well, you you raised the idea of, I was um, thinking of bringing back this guy that I had interviewed previously Mm as journalist. And I'm going to do that at some point, definitely. There's just been a lot of crazy things happening in the world. But um, I do agree that I think, honestly, the Pentagon will probably give Turkey the green light to do some kind of operation. They're not going to go all the way east to the Iraqi border, but -hmm. they definitely will expand into Syria. And I also agree that, look turkey has already done this two times and the the sdf forces have refused to come to an agreement with damascus i doubt they're going to now i honestly think that the only the, i think they will eventually come to an agreement but it will be when it's much too late and they have they've lost all bargaining power <laughs> that's probably what's going to happen it's going to be well then
1: I, I i worry that once that happens though it's too late because the Syrian government can't even take idlib because of the turkish military outpost and they'll do the same thing in the northern part. And I, I worry that even if the SDF makes a deal, it, it good luck trying to get Turkey to move its military back. I mean, they're just not going to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to be like really pessimistic, but I don't think that Syria is going to get that territory back. You know, I, I know that Damascus has repeatedly said that it's vowed to take back every single inch of Syrian territory. And of course, it has every right to, it, you know, it has every right under international law. And Turkey is the one occupying its territory but realistically speaking i don't think it's going to happen and this is one of those examples of where the u.s which is really that's the only other power that turkey is really it's turkey it's the u.s and russia that turkey is concerned about and if the u.s isn't pressuring turkey to do it obviously the u.s isn't because they're fine with turkey occupying it they'd rather have turkey control it than syria Mm then there's going to be no pressure and this is one of those sticking points with Russia. I mean, Turkey has decent relations with Russia, but those relations are just constantly like love-hate. And Russia is not going to have any leverage over forcing Turkey to leave. So I unfortunately do not see Turkey ever leaving.
1: Yeah, well, um, if you're going to also um, another video I hope you'll do is uh, bring on Chris Hedges to talk about his, the the fall of the U.S. empire. Cause they, I forget which chapter was in, but he had predicted that the the empire be, uh, falls with more and more rights being taken away from the c- uh, citizens. Um, but anyway, food for thought um, I'm holding up the line for a while. So sorry about that.
0: No, no worries. It's always, it's always good to hear from you, Sam. And yeah, good, good recommendation. I'll see if I can get Chris on and I'm um, definitely, I'm going to try to bring on this journalist, Ali Ornick. Um, so yeah, that's can... it. Yeah. Ali was good. Well, yeah. anyway, take care Ben. Cool. For sure. Thanks. And now I'm going to jump to Aaron, a great regular caller. Go ahead,
2: Aaron. Oh, hey Ben, how's it going? Uh, hey, sorry about the last time. I like my calling sort of froze up, but I don't really have anything new. I, I was I was last time you were on. I was just trying to you know chime in about uh, about Amlo. That was a badass move at the press conference. <laughs> I mean, that's just. Uh, and then you know after that, I saw him playing baseball. He laid a bunt down the first base line and. <laughs> You know, meanwhile, our guy's falling off his bicycle. (laughs) I mean, this country, as a metaphor, I mean, what a joke this country is. I I, I mean, you're lucky. I I actually have temporary residency in Mexico, and um, I'm working on permanent. But uh, at this point, I I know this is not possible for 95% of the people that are probably listening, but, uh, like, I feel like get out if you can (laughs) because it feels so good when you see somebody like somebody who's just setting a normal moral compass by saying what everybody knows and what just cannot be said like Bernie can't say it the squad can't say it you know like nobody that represents us will make any kind of a little peep about it. Maybe they're afraid. I don't know. Maybe like if AOC said something about Assange, the IRS would audit her parents for the last 30 years or something. I don't know how it works, but uh, there's obviously some fear involved because uh, I, I don't get why. I, I really don't get why our progressive representatives are, are completely silent about this. And it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's depressing. It's 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 upsetting, but anyway, it it's so nice to at least there's some people in the world, and I, I think he's doing something. I think he's doing something, maybe a little more than just you know poking us in the eye. I think he's trying to set a different, uh, like uh, like I said, standard that others can follow to to speak the truth and and um, and open some people's eyes and. You know, God bless him for that.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, when AMLO became president in 2018, I was very excited just because, in the context of Mexico, he was, I knew he would be a huge shift. Honestly, my expectations were not very high because there are a lot of problems in Mexico, systemic problems with corruption and And as a president, you know, you are a powerful figure, but you don't control a lot of what's going on because it's such a federalized country, such a big country. But I have to say he has exceeded my expectations. He's been a very effective leader, a very good statesman. And also, I think you're right, just a very good symbol on the international stage of what a president should be like um, speaking out on these principled issues. Now, I mean, there is an element I do have to acknowledge of him you know, poking the U.S. in the eye because the Biden administration, in particular, has been pressuring AMLO. You know, uh, Sam was joking about a coup against AMLO. I mean, the thing about that is that one, the U.S. can't really risk doing a coup in Mexico because it's its southern neighbor. It has a two thousand mile border, and if the, and they already have a you know a problem with immigration, and and if they destabilize Mexico, I mean, it could be a complete disaster for the U.S. It would backfire majorly. But also, at the same time, I mean, the U.S. has been supporting opposition groups. We know that there are numerous, you know, so-called NGOs and media outlets that are funded by the NED and USAID, which are CIA cutouts. There's this guy, Claudio X. Gonzalez, who's like this oligarch. His, his father was, was one of the main cor- uh, corporate representatives for U.S. corporations in Mexico. He was on the He was on the board of like that, the company that makes Dixie cup, Dixie cups. Like he's, he's a complete oligarch. And this guy, Claudio X. Gonzalez has this group called Mexicans Against Corruption. And that group is funded by the U.S. government and they have been constantly demonizing AMLO and all this stuff. The U.S. published this report accusing AMLO of endangering the media, endangering journalists because he's called out some of like the ridiculous fake news in the, The oligarch controlled media in Mexico. So obviously, to be fair, part of what he was, what, part of what AMLO is doing with his constant calls to free Assange and offering him asylum is he's responding to the U.S. and calling out the hypocrisy of the U.S. accusing him of endangering journalists while the U.S. is trying to imprison the most famous journalists in the world for the rest of his life. But I also think that you are right that he's definitely taking a principled stance because we've seen him do this on other issues, you know, especially the Bolivia coup. That was a, another really significant watershed moment in which Mexico stood up and said, we are not going to allow the U.S. and the OAS to back a coup against a democratically elected president. And, of course, people might remember that that Evo Morales, he went to Mexico and then he later went to Argentina Many figures from the, the Mas party of Evo Morales, the movement towards socialism party, they also got, got asylum in Mexico. And in fact, even in Bolivia, there were, right after the coup, there were attempts, these, these fascists in the coup were literally hunting down Mas leaders and many of them were hiding in the Mexican embassy. So AMLO has, has really been, I think, a pretty impressive leader. This isn't, this isn't to mention, you know, the domestic policy is like increasing the minimum wage, uh, you know, nationalizing lithium, renationalizing oil. Like I, I agree that he, he's definitely been a good model. And even in a country that, you know, is politically pretty dysfunctional, I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to govern Mexico. It would be like, you know, governing the U.S. This, this, this massive sprawling apparatus that is very undemocratic and, this federalized system that makes it hard to keep things in control. But the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, Aaron, you, you encourage people to get out. I honestly, like I, uh, I do feel the same way. And I, and I do caveat that by saying that, you know, we do need good people in the U S fighting the, the good struggle, right? Because things are extremely bad and we do need, you know, people organizing on the streets and, people, you know, in the labor movement and the anti-war movement and fighting against police brutality and all of that. But honestly, at some point, you have to kind of realize you only have one life, that maybe like you can't really save this this government that is in this free fall and collapse. And although it's worth trying to do what we can, and you know, it's what I do, I don't live in the US, but I still try to do what I can. At some point, you do kind of have to to make a decision if you want to just keep going through this torment or maybe checking something out uh, in another country. And I highly recommend it, at least visiting for more than just a week and doing touristy stuff. I think it's a very good idea for people in the U.S. to at least spend some time abroad. At the very least, even if you come back to the dysfunctional U.S., you'll have a broader perspective on the world. It, It helps you to See past like the dumb partisanness, the partisanism and, and, and like the distraction of, of mainstream U.S. politics. So, I mean, yeah, Aaron, if you're in Mexico, uh, it's, it's really funny, but there, are, I think you're, you, you are part of a, a larger movement of more and more people from the U.S. There are a lot of people, you know, I, I hate the term expat because it's like, if I mean, you're from a, but- a poor country, they call you an immigrant. You're from a rich country. They call you an expat, but you're part of a a movement of people from the U.S. who are like, man, this country is so dysfunctional that after mass migration of Mexicans to the U.S. because NAFTA destroyed their economy, we're going to migrate to Mexico.
2: Oh, I mean, uh, uh, you, you can still hear me, right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah, no. They've been like, um, it used to be like you used getting temporary or permanent residency in Mexico used to be like nothing, but they they raised the income, the um, income requirements and the uh, you know amount of money you have to have in the bank, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and I mean, yeah, pretty soon it's going to be going the opposite way. Because, and it's funny when you tell people like, oh, I, I'm going to live in Mexico or you know I've been in Mexico, like. Eighty percent of the people, the first reaction is, "Oh, it's so dangerous there, isn't it?" It's like just, just, just there's so many people <laughs> getting killed. And you walk Compared around Mexico City, like walk around Mexico City. It is the most peaceful, beautiful. It's like it's just one of the greatest places to be in the world. And you feel just. And I understand, you know, if you're in the you know Roma neighborhood or the Condesa or whatever, you're 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 around people that have means. But um, I don't know. Claudia has been doing a great job there. I hope I hope she's I hope she's the next president. I I think she's fantastic, too. I love her. All right. Hey, thanks, Ben. It's Always great talking to you.
0: Yeah. Thank. Ditto. Um, And yeah, just really briefly, I'll say it's it's so funny always hearing people in the U.S. say that it's like, you know, what about all like the, the violence? And it's like you do realize that the U.S. has the most mass shootings out of any country in the world by far. And it's it's just so surreal. I mean, obviously, I, there are certain towns in northern Mexico where the state is very weak. And, you know, the cartel presence is very strong. Obviously, don't go there. But I I second what you say. I mean, Mexico City is such an amazing city. I highly recommend everyone visiting. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. And the, and I never felt, you know, endangered. Like, obviously, don't be like a dumb tourist. But, yeah, I think... You know, the, the reputation that Mexico has is so ridiculous and it's really so racist. I mean, there, people have this idea that like Mexico is just like the wild west. But what's sad is it's in many ways, it's kind of like projection for the U.S. The U.S. is becoming much, and much more dangerous and Mexico is actually safer in many ways, depending on where you are, but in many places. And, and I should also say that, you know, even compared to other cities like Puebla, Mexico City is a little more dangerous, but, you know, there's a lot of other places that are significantly safer than the U.S. And it's like, you know, Puebla and, and, and kind of smaller cities in Mexico. It's like, I mean, the chance of you getting robbed in, in a major U.S. city are way higher than there. So it's just weird projection. It's propaganda. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, Aaron. Um, All right. Thanks. So. So I I have a hard stop in 10 minutes, so I'm just going to take the final question here from Pedro, and then I have to stop. Go ahead.
3: Uh, Hi, Ben. Good afternoon. Uh, So I'm not not sure if this was already mentioned, but uh, AMLO, the Mexican president, will visit the U.S. in July. So this is uh, probably something to, to... to listen in, he, he said he will mention mention the uh, Assange uh, issue with the with the American president. So let's let's see what happens. So that was just basically what I wanted to add to the previous caller. Uh, I might add uh, since you were talking about living in the U.S. I actually live in the U.S. and and the worst part for me, uh, I mean taking the fact that we don't have Medicare for all and all that stuff. One of the worst parts for me actually is to listen to television. (laughs) Yeah, I like to watch CNN and MSNBC in peacetime because I like to know what's happening in the world, you know, just listen to the TV. But when I listen to CNN, I always feel that they are lying to me, you know, you know, the feeling so so i just stopped listening it's just unbearable especially now with uh, in the wartime they basically just lie to me and i feel a little bit more stupid every time i tune in so i, I just disconnected <laughs> so that's all for me today have a great day ben take care bye
0: yeah thank you pedro and and you're from portugal right
3: yeah that that's correct yes yes so yeah uh, I'm not sure if I what I'm gonna do because one day I'm gonna be like old, really old, and, and needing for, for medical care. So what I'm gonna do? I'm, maybe I'll just go back to Portugal where I have free healthcare. I don't know. Exactly, <laughs> we'll, I know. We'll see. We'll see. But if you, if you have any suggestion for a good uh, expat country in the, in Latin America, like some Caribbean islands, <laughs> just go ahead and let us know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, okay. you but- know,
0: it, it depends on what people are looking for. That's a whole other long conversation. But uh, you know, um, Nicaragua was very nice. If you like a small, kind of peaceful country, not very big, but you know, nice beaches and good politics. Uh, Argentina and Uruguay are really nice. They have good healthcare systems, and they're a little more expensive, but also decent politics. And I know Mexico is great. The healthcare system is not great in Mexico but I mean it's certainly significantly more affordable than in the US but but anyway no I mean on, on your point about Amlo um, and his, his meeting with Biden so Amlo did say in his press conference that he's going to bring this topic up and pressure Biden to pardon Assange although unfortunately I definitely do not have my hopes up I should mention that Amlo at the end of the Trump administration, sent a letter to Trump. This is, of course, when U.S. presidents, usually in the last month or two, they do presidential pardons. And AMLO pressured Trump to pardon Assange. And Trump completely ignored the letter from AMLO. And instead, I mean, this this double standard for me just really shows just the disgusting, uh, you know, U.S. government policy toward the rest of the world. So Trump refused to pardon Julian Assange, who exposed U.S. war crimes committed in Iraq. And instead, Trump pardoned the Blackwater mercenaries who were convicted of war crimes and imprisoned for massacring civilians in Iraq, intentionally. They knew they were killing civilians. So for me, that just is such a disgusting example of what U.S. presidents end up doing. And of course, Biden campaigned on the promise: if I'm president, nothing will fundamentally change. So I, I take him at his word. <laughs> yes, but
3: that's—I agree with you. Nothing will happen. Yes. Yeah. Very sad, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, Pedro. Um, I do. I really have a hard stop because I have another interview in ten minutes. So I'll take Fahim's statement really quickly. But I only have like two or three minutes here. Go ahead, Fahim.
4: Hey, uh, Ben, can you hear me? I can. Uh, yeah, so, go ahead. Uh, a quick thing with regards to other countries being more violent I think there's a big racist element uh, to it Uh, coming from uh, uh, having grown up in Pakistan and moving to the US uh, when I hear uh, like people say "Oh, Mexico is so violent or this country is so violent I think there's a a lot of uh, racism uh, attached uh, to it but uh, that being said maybe one of these days uh, I'd like to hear from you with regards to uh, uh, Costa Rica and uh, and also uh, when a couple of the callers called uh, in about uh, moving uh, to different uh, countries, I've, I'm curious as to what is the impact when uh, so many uh, uh, or uh, people from the U.S. move to places like Costa Rica and other uh, places, because I see, uh, especially being in San Diego area, a lot of the quote unquote, surfer bros uh, moving uh, uh, there, but also driving up the real estate uh, prices and how does that affect the politics in uh, the country and all. And I I know you don't have much time, but maybe just uh, in the future, I'd love to hear from you on that.
0: Yeah, really good question. I, I mean, I really agree with you that a big part of the idea that other countries, especially the global south are so much more violent than the US is definitely because of racism. And when you meet when people around the world, when they look at the U.S., they're like, what the hell is going on with these mass shootings all the time? So, yeah, I mean, the idea that the U.S. is like some peaceful country and other countries are very violent is just part of that racist trope. But um, and so, and it's also just because of the power of American exceptionism, the idea that, you know, the U.S. is a sort of great, you know, great beacon of freedom and democracy. But as for Costa Rica and and like kind of this international gentrification, Well, yes, that is an issue, although I'll complicate it a little bit. One, so in the case of Mexico, actually, ironically, this has been an issue because there have been people from California moving to Mexico because California is becoming so expensive and that it is true that in big cities, especially Mexico City, it has driven up real estate prices, although, I mean... uh, Part of that is also just because of the real estate industry and like the, you know, the, the big landowners who have a vested interest in doing that. So I, I wouldn't necessarily let off the big landowners and these big real estate companies that are taking advantage of that as, in order to try, to try to provide a justification for raising rents. This is a convenient justification for them to make more money. So it's not really the, it's not really the root cause, but it it definitely has a a factor. It definitely is a factor. It has an influence in Costa Rica. I mean, the, the immigration is not that large. We're not talking about very many people. So, and, and it's concentrated in certain areas. And this is true of Mexico City as well. Mexico City is massive. There's 20 million people. And in certain areas, you know, uh, Aaron mentioned places like Roma, which is one of like the more upscale areas, like wealthier areas. Real estate prices in particular in those areas have risen because those are the areas where a lot of foreigners are moving. And in Costa Rica, that's true as well. Whereas yeah, in
4: Costa Rica, I've seen most of the folks from Southern California moving to like this Guanacaste and Osara area. Exactly, uh, the up beach up areas. Area. Yeah, yeah, but it's, and that's why I mentioned that I usually, mostly heard from all the uh, quote-unquote surfer bros, uh, and uh, I when I started looking at like, okay, how is this uh, affecting the economy uh, uh, there and uh, 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 politics uh, and all that, and it's not much talked about, uh, and I was wondering maybe one of these... Uh, days, I'd like to hear, of okay, what role does Costa Rica play on with uh, U.S. imperialism? Uh, is it a factor? Is it not a factor? Is it uh, basically just a silent partner? Uh, so it would be nice to hear uh, from uh, you uh, in the near future.
0: Yeah, really briefly, I'll say Costa Rica is really one of the most reliant U.S. allies in the region. Its government is really not independent. Uh, and there, there's a new president right now who claims to be a little more independent. He just entered. We'll see how it goes. I don't have much confidence. But their past two presidents were basically just complete U.S. puppets. In fact, their second last president, Laura Chinchilla, she now lives in Washington and works for a U.S. government funded think tank and is just like an extreme hawk and constantly calling for overthrowing the Nicaraguan government. So Costa Rica is really kind of colonized and by the US government it, the the left is very weak and it kind of just all alternates between like a very right-wing party and like a centrist neoliberal party. As as for like um you know people from the US moving to Costa Rica again it's not the population is not that big. In terms of in terms of prices of real estate it only really affects like certain areas where they tend to concentrate. The the you know, U.S. immigrants tend to concentrate. Um, and in terms of the politics, they don't really have much of an influence. Now, I do say that I will say that a lot of governments in the region, even Nicaragua, does encourage that because it's another source of revenue. They can tax the real estate and it's a source of revenue, especially in Central America, which is a very poor region of the world. And they don't have a lot of sources of revenue because they don't have significant natural resources like oil, which, of course, Mexico has oil and lithium. So. A lot of the governments actually are encouraging people moving or at least spending more time there because it's another, you know, form of revenue coming in. So in terms of real estate, I mean, in those areas, they'll be affected. But I haven't seen a lot of, you know, working class people being affected by real estate. And another thing to keep in mind, especially it's different in Mexico City but in like more rural areas in Mexico and also in Central America, which is similar to kind of rural Mexico, like, you know, Chiapas and Southern Mexico are pretty similar to Central America. A lot of people, they live in like very humble houses and they don't like, they don't, um like they're not paying rent. Like they are homeowners, but they're, you know, they're very humble houses with like maybe two bedrooms. And so um, the um the whole like economy built around like, buying like a a house and all of that a lot of people still have houses that are like from their family or you know nicaragua has a very good public housing program and the houses are very humble but it provides these houses for people and they they actually ironically have significantly higher rates of home ownership than the u.s and the u.s it's like 60 percent and in in nicaragua it's it's almost one it's like 90 something percent so a lot of people aren't even paying rent that doesn't mean that I'm not going to fan, I'm not going to like, um, pretend like they live in like these really fancy houses. Again, many of them are very humble houses, but they're owners of them. So they're not really worried about real estate prices going up. But yeah, Thank unfortunately, you, yeah, good questions. Unfortunately, I do have to run because I have another interview, but I do two of these a week and usually I do them on like Tuesday and Thursday or sometimes Friday. So just people should check out. I, uh, I post here in Colin and then I also post on Twitter. So thanks to everyone who joined and I'll see you next week.